Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Today, nutritional therapist Emily Collingwood joins us on the Ag Emerge podcast. As a nutritional therapist, Emily consults with her clients, helping them to identify and solve diet-related health concerns. Emily is also the creator of the Facebook group called Green Avocado Gang, where she shares ideas, recipes, and encouragement for her followers as they develop healthy eating habits. Emily shares her personal journey of how she uses nutrient-dense foods to help address and solve the health issues she was facing, and in turn, she wanted to help others find solutions too. We're excited to have Emily join us because at Ag Emerge, the focus on regenerative agriculture and using soil health principles to build healthy soil, in turn, helps us grow healthy, nutrient-rich food. We're learning what consumers are looking for as they vote with their food dollars. We're also working to build that connection and dialogue between the consumer and farmer. And our discussion with Emily is a great place to start. So Emily, welcome to the podcast. You know, uh, we met over a year ago at a cooking class where you worked with a group of folks looking to make changes in their diet. And that was such a fun and informational class. And as we start our conversation today, we like our listeners to hear a bit of your story. Can you walk us through how you began this journey? Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's nice to see other faces during this time. So this is, this is great. Um, there was a woman, uh, she was Lithuanian. Her name was Anne Wigmore, and she was a holistic health practitioner. She quoted the phrase, uh, the food that you eat can either be the safest and most powerful form of medicine or the slowest form of poison. And I think that is so true. Um, I start my story years and years ago when I was about 17 years old. I was diagnosed with depression. Um, fought that for about 25 years. I took all the medications that they had out there, probably every single medication that they treated depression with, I've tried at some point in time. Nothing really worked. I had ups and downs, highs and lows. Um, During this time, no one told me to change my diet. No one said, you need to stop drinking four Pepsis a day. You need to stop eating Burger King. You need to stop having cinnamon rolls for breakfast. Uh, no one no one gave me any information about food or told me to change my diet or that, you know, sugar has a connection to depression or anxiety or anything like that. So probably about four years ago, I met this woman at a CrossFit gym and she was doing a Whole30 diet. It's a very restrictive diet. It's a 30-day program where you take out a lot of different foods. Generally, you feel better after it's over, but it's just not sustainable. During this time, I was doing a lot of research about that. I ran into a bunch of nutritional people on Instagram, and one woman had gone to the Nutritional Therapy Association um, to be a nutritional therapist. And I thought, gosh, what an awesome thing that would be. So I decided to take the class to go to go to that school and to get my nutritional therapy consultant certificate. So during that time, I started eating better. A lot of vegetables, good good proteins, well-sourced proteins, um, cut out the sugar, started exercising, um, making connections with people, getting good sleep, 
just consistently eating good food. And over time, I talked with my doctor and we decided to slowly take um, the medication away. So cut it, cut it, cut it. Um, and it, it ended up working for me. Uh, I had no idea that, that depression and uh, diet were so, so closely related. And so here we are about two years later. I'm medication-free. Um, I know what I need to do to stay healthy for me. And it's working. It's just real whole food. So, Well, that's really interesting how you were able to find that out and how it took 25 years to do that. So I imagine, is that kind of fueled your passion for what you're doing? today as a nutritional therapist, uh, consulting with other people, as far as your own life experience has allowed you to uh, fuel the fire that you have for, for helping others? And, and how, does that, how does that translate into other people's lives? It absolutely uh, is my passion because I know what real food can do for people. So some of those things that you're doing now, what have you seen? So you were dealing with depression. Some of the clients that you work with, what is kind of the the range of, of uh, symptoms or diseases or conditions that you're, that you're faced with uh, in your clientele and, and how, and that you've seen food choices making an impact on. Sure. A lot of my clients come in to me with a variety of concerns. Lack of energy is one. Fatigue. A lot of people generally are fatigued, especially by mid-afternoon. Um, a lot of body aches, tons of headaches, a lot of weight gain a lot of depression and anxiety. Um, and, and what we do is try to remedy those symptoms. Uh, we'll change them in, into a whole food diet and try to figure out what's causing the symptoms in the first place. And a lot of the times it's sugar and just the poor choices that we have. Everyone's really busy. drive throughs are easy. But to go through and, and to change their diets into, into real whole food diets um, usually remedy symptoms for them. So when you're talking about these, these various people, I mean, I realize you're not on anything. You can't ever have a hundred percent success rate, but would you say that when they change their diet and follow your advice? Okay. So part of it is knowledge, right? And the other part's behavior. So you know, like Dave Ramsey says in managing your money, it's 20% head knowledge, 80% behavior. Are you seeing a similar thing with your clients? Uh, you give them the 20%, but they have to do the 80%. Is that a, is that a fair way to look at that? Absolutely. And, and when people come in to talk to me, I, I ask them on a scale of one to 10, how serious are you about, you know, making these changes? How, how much do you want to feel better? And I like to work with the people who are eight, nine, 10 and up, like they're ready to do it. The other people are probably going to fail. Now you're eight, nine and tens out of those, Emily, how many of those are successful? 80% plus? Oh, I would say 90% plus once they put their mind to it and dig in and, and do it. And it's almost immediate within a week or so, they'll be texting me with, um, you know, symptoms that have lessened or I haven't felt this way in years or I didn't have to take a nap today or whatever that looks like for them. Yeah, they're not having a nap or not having to have caffeine or sugar in the afternoon and those kind of things. Um, Correct. It, that's, that's pretty amazing. So not only have you seen this transformation in yourself personally, which, which, uh, you know, no doubt, you know what happened there, but you're seeing it in multiple other cases. When you change your food, it remedies God's body design for us to, to make it behave. And, and I mean, that's just fascinating in the broad range of, of clients and cases that you get to work with. Gosh, I mean, it blows me away. I, I mean, does it, does it just fascinate you how so many of these different symptoms all have a similar cause? 
correct? Correct. It does fascinate me. It's what keeps me me going. And and the, the body was designed to to be fueled by certain nutrients and to not be fueled by other nutrients. So usually things that man has had his hand in that man has made aren't so great for the body. But the things that that are on the earth that were given to us, um, you know, those are, are the nutrients that, that we need to fuel and to properly maintain function. So when you're working with a client and they have all these different symptoms that they come in, how much variance is there in the diet recommendations that you have from person to person? So let's say you got 30 different symptoms or, or, or problems that you have. Are you going to have 30 different diet regimes for those people? Or is it all kind of basically the same? Get back to you know, whole foods, unprocessed, lower your carb intake, you know, eat grass-fed pastured proteins, you know, all of these kind of more of the basic foods, or is it tailored very specifically for each individual? How does that work on the mechanics side of that? Well, everyone is a bio-individual, so different things are, are good for different people. Something that's great for me might not work well for you. Um, and that's one thing that we definitely always have in the forefront of my mind when I'm working with someone. Generally, I'll take away uh, processed dairy products. I will take away um, grains sometimes, definitely gluten. Um, and, and when I say gluten, I don't mean gluten so much as in gluten's bad, but usually the way that um, gluten-containing crops are grown uh, with uh, glyphosate and things like that, I try to get rid of that. But, seems to cause leaky gut in a lot of people. So generally, I'll, I'll usually do an elimination of some sort. And then depending on their symptoms, I might add certain foods in, like people who have you know liver gallbladder issues, I'll definitely recommend that they eat beets. Um, I, I love beets, I love broccoli. Those are our two huge recommendations. But generally, I'll take things away. And then some people will take a food sensitivity test too. And that will give us um, some data that we can go by to look and see, hey, you know, this person doesn't tolerate beans very well. So we might remove beans and see if their digestion works a little bit better, if they're feeling a little bit better. 30 days to 60 days after that, we might add beans back in to see if maybe we've done some gut healing. We've, we've worked on that and that they can tolerate those again and digest them properly. Yeah, there's kind of a foundation that you work with, but then everybody is different and you have to address their, their symptoms and their needs and their own epigenetics and biology accordingly. Exactly. Okay. Yes. So from your perspective, and, and I think for our listeners, this is, this is important for, for them to know, uh, you know, you've seen the results, you've seen the success, uh, you, you know, you've been able to help people be, uh, make a difference in their lives. And so this isn't, you know, uh, voodoo or made up stuff. This is really happening. Oftentimes, you know, we're, we're told in, the food world that well nutrients a nutrient right and you know carbs aren't carbs are carbs and all that stuff that's kind of the paradigm of today but for a farmer to understand the paradigm of nutrition uh, for the future as as he's looking or she's looking at their operation and, and where they need to move to to be to match up with what people are wanting what is kind of the general level of awareness of these kind of issues when clients come to you? Are they just completely oblivious that the food is causing it or they're aware that the food is causing it and they need some help or they're pretty far down and they need some fine tuning? Where, where are people at today with your clientele that are seeking you out and then maybe in the broader um, uh, people who haven't seeked you out, but kind of your opinion on where the broader society is on food's impact on health? 
Sure. I see a, a broad spectrum of people. Some people have their diets really, really dialed in and they just need a few tweaks to get to where they want to be. Maybe they have that last five or 10 pounds to lose and, and they want me to check their food journal and see, see what they're doing. Others uh, will have no idea that, you know, McDonald's is making them sick. They'll have no idea that, that drinking soda is, is not doing well for them. Other people um, don't eat any vegetables at all. Like that's not a part of their diet. So we'll have to talk about that and how micronutrients are important. Uh, it, it is a very wide variety of, of people and their knowledge level when they come in. Some people I spend two or three hours with talking to them about their entire, you know, revamping their entire diet and, and others are, are eating, you know, generally a paleo-ish diet and, uh, you know, just need some fine tuning. So it is a, a huge spectrum. The people, your general opinion of people outside of that you're seeing in your practice, do you think that until they have a problem, food's just food? Or is there a general building awareness out there? I wonder if people innately do know that food is not just food. I, I just had a client come in a couple of weeks ago and she sat down and she said, I know I'm not eating right. I don't know exactly what that looks like, you know, for me, but I know what I'm eating is not, not good for my body. So I need your help. I need you to get me there. I think it, we're becoming more aware as far as availability and things like that. I think that's interesting because I would agree. I think people are becoming more and more informed. I think there's more outlets. Uh, to become informed, uh, you know, through social media or through, you know, Netflix documentaries. Uh, uh, for a long time, I've said uh, we've had the Netflix effect in food. And I think people want to know and, uh, and those kind of things. We've always strived to have a, um, you know, medical doctor at uh, the main Ag Emerge event just to make farmers aware of the connection between the soil and the food that they grow in human health and uh it, it's a big deal in how we're doing it so i do want to get a little bit of your perspective backing up on on a few things you mentioned the glyphosate effect on wheat issues uh, now i'm i'm aware of this i don't know if most of our uh, listeners may be aware but uh first off glyphosate i think everybody knows that's a main active ingredient in the branded chemical roundup but it's available in probably over a hundred different brand name formulations so uh, of generics glyphosate and wheat how does that work because wheat's not roundup ready and oats aren't roundup ready from our perspective what's happening is they use glyphosate as a ripening agent to get the wheat ready at the same time and to get it dried down especially in northern climates uh, you know top tier states in canada glyphosate's applied to wheat in order to terminate it so once the, the wheat plant is uh, fully formed the seed, they'll, they'll spray glyphosate on it to get it to dry down quicker. Is that so what they call they a desiccant? Yes, yeah, okay. desiccant. Okay, yep. thanks. There's other desiccants that can be used too, but uh, those desiccants cost more and quite frankly are, are even more toxic. So, and, and glyphosate translocates within the plant to the growing regions. Uh, so at that point in time, the last place that's really growing or has active growth is the kernel being filled. So if people uh, apply glyphosate prior to the kernel being fully filled, it will translocate that glyphosate into the seed. So that's interesting to see uh, that effect. So talk to me, your understanding and your client's understanding of what glyphosate is doing to them. You mentioned some leaky gut and some other things. Um, what are you seeing there? To the best of our knowledge, um, glyphosate causes uh, little perforations in your intestines, small intestines, large intestines. A lot of people don't um, 
have the tools for proper digestion. They don't drink enough water. They don't eat enough zinc-containing foods. They don't eat enough B vitamin-containing foods. So their digestion doesn't work properly. They're stressed out. I mean, we're all running around you know, crazy, especially right now. Everybody's adrenals and cortisol is working overtime. Um, so we're not getting the digestion that we need in the stomach. So undigested food is moving into the intestines and the, the glyphosate is causing little permeations in the intestines. And then that allows that undigested food to get out into the body, into the bloodstream. And that's not good. We want those nutrients to be as small as possible to be digested, to be able to be used by the body and then kind of roaming around all willy nilly can cause some um, allergy type issues, can cause uh, immune dysfunction can cause a lot of different things. So we don't want to eat that really. We don't want to eat that. So a couple of things that are happening when glyphosate is introduced in the gut is one, it is, it is a biocide or antibiotic. So it is selecting for pathogenic, generally pathogenic, reducing microbes instead of beneficial microbes. The second thing it's doing too is it does tie up with uh, micronutrients such as zinc, iron, and manganese. And you mentioned zinc in there. And those reduced zinc levels do change the biota in the gut uh, because they uh, divide and reproduce less frequently so that that's pretty fascinating and then the other thing you know the quaker oats thing that, that came out uh, quaker oats is here in, in cedar rapids iowa and it is very common practice on oats to spray glyphosate to terminate them because oats in general uh, don't stand as well so you want to uh, terminate them and harvest them right away so they don't go flat and don't have a problem with harvesting. So again, as farmers, we've been told by the chemical company, uh, this is fine. It's an accepted practice. The EPA has approved it and all these things. And, and we're just doing what we've been told. Uh, but uh, the information isn't getting there. And, and the, the trouble is, is if one farmer learns and not everybody learns, then, then he, he doesn't do it. And he's at a disadvantage compared to the neighbors who are ignorant and do do it. Um, don't mean ignorant in a bad way meaning way but just in lack of knowledge and i think that's uh you know that's that's part of the issue so uh it's fascinating how all these things work together i you know i, I bet you could give us you know lots of examples of frustration like that where you know things that we think are good for us to do or are healthy for us are are not i mean uh, how, how many times when you're working with clients do you have to you know completely help them do a mental 180 on something they've always done think it was healthy and then uh, they come to find out after working with you that ooh, that is complete opposite do you run into that oh yeah a lot especially with stuff that's supposed to be heart healthy um you know they told us that that saturated fats were bad for us they did this big study in the 40s and 50s and and decided that you know margarine was the way to go. Butter was bad for us. Animal products were bad for us. Saturated fat was causing you know heart disease and heart attacks, strokes, things like that. Well, come to find out, that's not true. Just by really, really bad science, you know. So now we're eating eating those saturated fats again, and that's really hard to convince people to eat butter and to eat bacon and to cook their vegetables in bacon grease. Um, but people are thrilled when I say you know eat all the eggs you want, eat bacon cook your kale in, in bacon grease. I mean, who wants to eat kale? But if you cook it in bacon grease, you want to eat it, you know? <laughs> so much better. Well, we, we put kale in our cover crops, and I always say that our cows eat kale, so you don't have to. Yes, people get thank a, you. People get a chuckle out of that. But uh, yes. anyway, yeah, I mean, 
I have found that on our Grateful Graze business when we're talking to customers, when you tell them, you know, people order the extra lean burger and I have a conversation with them and I said, you don't want extra lean. You know, you, you want to get yourself to the higher fat contents because fat is where the goodies are at. I mean, that's where all of the nutritional, the, you know, omega-3s and the vitamin, uh, fat-based vitamins and, and those kind of things. And it's just uh, people have gotten their diet uh, to where they are afraid of fat. Uh, fascinating, isn't it? Yes. And the beef tastes so much better when it's, you know, 85% lean and, and the rest fat. It tastes so much better. People don't realize too that fats are essential in the diet. Like there's three macronutrients and we need all three of them. Um, and fat is essential. It's the building block of every cell in the body. You have to eat fat. And fat doesn't make you fat. Fat doesn't make you gain weight. Uh, it doesn't make you overweight. What does make you gain weight and hang on to weight is the highly processed carbohydrates that we're eating. So people are usually thrilled when I tell them that you can eat all the healthy fats that, that you can get your hands on. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing the, the mental paradigms, right? Because we've been taught for so long that fat is bad, fat is bad. And it, it is difficult for some people to, to get their head around that and, and switch. Now, you know, we wouldn't want to recommend, you know, processed soybean oil and corn oil and stuff like that, but, uh, you know, naturally occurring fats, you know, not, yes. not man-made fats, just the same as you're doing with the, the processed things. So. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Emily, that all brings the question to my mind that as a consumer then as we're shopping, can you talk a little bit about how hard is it to source the food that you're looking for and is it readily available to the consumer? Tell us a little bit about that grocery experience. Sure. You have to become a label reader. You absolutely have to read your labels and then you have to have a little bit of knowledge about um, processed foods, you know, what oils are good for you and what aren't, what, and, and that's just doing research and takes time and, and time and educating yourself. But there are more and more companies these days who are building foods and processed foods that have good ingredients in them. So I try not to eat foods that have more than five ingredients if I'm eating a packaged food. And then out of those five ingredients, I want to be able to know what all five of them are without having to Google them. So that's one kind of five by five rule that I live by. Yeah. There's a lot of niche grocery stores, specialty grocery stores in the area, not a lot, I think maybe two or three, um, where you can go and generally get good products. But again, just being a label reader, and they, there's a book out there too that, that has all the food additives in it. You can take the book with you to the grocery store. I used to do that before I had all the knowledge in my brain. Um, and you just really need to read the label and, and see what's in there. If you can't pronounce it or you don't know what it is, you probably shouldn't eat it. So let's say you could paint a picture of the perfect food world, okay? What would you want farmers doing practice-wise? Uh, and what kind of crops would you want them producing? And then that has to be all the way through the food system because they're essentially selling to the food system and, you know, supplying what people are demanding uh, through the food system. What would you want them, food processors and food companies, what would that ideal world look like? What, what should we be shooting for in the future? Sure. Well, I mean, you could start on the farm. I would want someone who definitely 
uh, is a humane person who raises their, their animals humanely. Um, and I think there's so much bad stuff going on. I would like a farmer who's environmentally aware of what they're doing, what they're putting in the soil, the, the effects that, that they could have, you know, the next day or three months from now or five years from now, like what's going on? You want to leave the soil, you know, like you guys do a little bit better than, than you found it. That, that's ideally what we'd like. I would like organically raised food if, if possible. I mean, some food that I, that I eat is not organic, but most of it is. I would like it raised close to, you know, where I live so that we have a very low impact on the environment as far as like trucking, shipping, materials, things probably that I can't even think of. Um, food that's in season. I want seasonally uh, raised food um, picked at the proper time, not picked ahead of time so that so that we have to, you know, spray a chemical on it to make tomatoes red or whatever that looks like. I would like very few medications used on the animals that I eat. Uh, obviously, if the animal's sick and needs needs medication, we don't want an animal to suffer, but I don't want that coming back into the food that I eat. As far as processors go, it'd be nice if we could figure out a way to make food a little bit shelf stable without using lots of chemicals and additives and preservatives. Um, if you're preserving food on the shelf, what's that doing to the body? You know, are we preserving the body too in an unnatural way? Just a few things that I can think of off the top of my head. Sure. And I, I think that's interesting. Um, one of the things on the, the seasonality that, that you mentioned uh, and uh, food miles, so two, two different things that you mentioned. What do we do about, uh, you know, locally grown broccoli in March or, or February here? How do we make that happen? That's kind of a challenge and, and the food mile having the impact. I, I think that's uh, perceived as a, as, a, as a big problem. How high does that rank as a problem? Would you rather have broccoli grown in California in a natural environment delivered in February to Illinois, or would you rather have an unnatural hothouse environment with extra plastics and mulching and heaters to have it grown locally? Because the reality is the locally grown would have a greater environmental impact than the California grown, uh, you know, trucking it by or railing it across the country, which is, which is kind of the trade-off there, or you just don't have broccoli in January. How would you rate that? If you think about how, you know, people used to live before we had all these modern conveniences, people didn't eat. Well, well, yeah, or they didn't eat broccoli, fresh broccoli in February in the Midwest. You know, they just didn't. They, they ate mm -hmm. other foods that they, they would can or, you know, the winter squashes would, would keep well over the winter time. And then, you know, you would enjoy those things when you could grow them and harvest them at the appropriate time. Okay. I mean, ideally, so, yeah, that would so, be the way there was a cyclical nature in our food, right? So, you know, when it comes, I remember when I was a kid and it was tomato season, you got just sick of tomatoes after a while and your mouth was burning from eating all the tomato acid, right? And that still happens today. People grow homegrown tomatoes, but there's kind of a cyclical nature to that. I'm thinking, okay, you know, 50 years ago or a hundred years ago before freezers and, and, and before refrigeration, you know, how did right. we, how did we do it? And, um, there was less incidences of chronic disease. Is that because, you know, you know, some would say we couldn't diagnose it or, you know, people didn't live as long to be able to have the chronic disease and acute diseases would take them out first, or is it the food system uh, prevented those things at that time? Think about a lot of the food that we had back then was uh, fermented foods too, correct? Because sure. we use for fermentation to store them. What kind of healthy impact does fermented foods have on us? 
Uh, fermented foods are great for the gut. A lot of good bacteria in there that kind of helps to repopulate the gut or to populate the gut with uh, lots of good bacteria. Helps with digestion. So we've kind of shortcutted those good bacteria that we were getting before in the past with our, you know, freezing and, and processing systems today. Because for sure, I, I would imagine the percent of fermented food intake, uh, other than alcohol, which that isn't really fermented food, uh, it is fermented. But I mean, you know, looking at, you know, all the brassicas we would ferment and all the various foods, it has to be a very small percentage of our diet now is fermented. Agree. Yes, definitely. I do recommend a lot of fermented foods for my clients, sauerkraut, um, fermented beets, pickles, uh, things like that. And a few people will go ahead and, you know, make their own and, and do their own things. Kombucha is another good one that some people like to enjoy too. Definitely need to eat more of those. Interesting. So I appreciate you sharing what you were looking for in the I ideal food world. What do you think it's going to take for us to get from where we are today and your understanding of where we are today to your understanding of where we need to be with that um, food system in the future, what needs to happen to make that happen? Well, consumer demand, I think for sure, needs to make that happen. If people are only buying certain things, and you know, I think the farmers would probably grow certain things. But I mean, is that even possible at this point? Well, every dollar is a vote. I've always said. Agree. So, yeah. if you. You know, but I know when we go to natural grocers and I bump into you there in, in the in the grocery aisle time to time, it's not the same price point as Save a Lot, you know, or right. uh, some other places, right? So you're you're looking at really a holistic lifestyle change, you know, that becomes a financial change. You have to look at adjusting your budget to accommodate it. So the consumer has to vote for it. You're saying that's what will make it change. For sure. And that, that just, uh, you know, we need to educate people. People need to be educated. It's just such a, just such a horrible cycle of, you know, the bad food tastes good and, and they engineer it to taste good that way. It's just a lot of, a lot of education I think is going to be needed to get people to make these choices. And I think we're moving that way. I definitely think in the next 10 to 15 years, we'll definitely be moving that way more and more as more people get sick, more people die from diabetes and cancer and heart related illnesses and things like that. We're going to start realizing that that is what you're putting in is, is what's going on. It's so, the problem of immediate gratification, isn't it? Oh, totally. And, and we're so busy. That's why I really enjoy this time right now. I think people are slowing down. People are being forced to cook food, being forced to connect with their families. You know, we're not all running around like crazy. Hopefully we're not right now. I, th I think this is a great rest and, and reset for a lot of us. And myself personally, I don't, I don't know if I want to continue on like I was before. Like, you know, there's some, some definitely some good changes, I think, for families to be making right now. That is interesting because, yeah, Robin and I have cooked at home, you know, every meal. Uh, I yeah. think we, since the last 30 days, we have had takeout twice and a, and a pizza once and that, that's yeah. it. We've just been eating at home and I know Robin's getting kind of sick of it, to be honest with you. But uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's interesting because when you make it, you know what you put in it and it, it is kind of fascinating. It will be interesting to see how this changes our food habits, but yeah, I think there is hope, right? If people become educated uh, from people like yourself, uh, that are working with clients to, to, to live healthier, and then they begin voting with their dollars for foods that they want, guess what I'll do as a farmer and what other farmers will do uh, listening to this podcast? We will grow what you want because 
you know, we have bills to pay. You know, we have mm-hmm. our own families to feed. We have our own land payments and tractor payments to make. And, uh, you know, we want to give people what they want. And uh, I think that's, um, yeah, it all comes down to education and knowing the 20% knowledge, right? But then the 80% behavior, how do you change that behavior to not stop for the, you know, mocha, frappa, lapa, right. something to chino, right? Of just pure junk and, and a fast food or any of those kind of things. Does it become when a person finally has the pain? Is that, is that what's driving them to make that change? What, what gets them over that hump? I think just being tired of being tired, being sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's something I hear a lot. You know, it's finally gets to a point where, you know, they very low functioning, can't do their job, don't enjoy their children or their spouse, um, or or they're at a certain weight where their clothes don't fit. And I've had a woman say, I refuse to buy pants in a bigger size. I'm not doing it. Like something's got to change. So a lot of things drive it. So how do we get the, the voting dollars to change? prior to having the problem you see that that's what i'm wondering is how do we get people to make a lifestyle change when they don't know they have a problem it is so tough because advertisers are out there you know mcdonald's and burger king they're putting these delicious pictures in our brains and instagram and facebook advertises to us all the time it's like how do how do we combat that you know we're just you're just one farmer i'm just one nutritionist you know, how, how do we, how do we do that? You know, go to the farmer's market and, and do education like we do there, have classes, but to get out to the masses is, is very challenging. And, and I, I hope as time goes on, people become more and more aware. And I know I'm going to keep talking about it and I know you will too. I think that's one of the key things about having conversations like this, because we don't have all the answers. Uh, we don't know all the ways that we're going to get there. But if we can ask the right questions about what is needed, you know, start asking, how can we make this happen? It just gets a whole lot of minds thinking in that direction. And and then that's kind of what gets the ball moving. We've got a lot of great minds out there. And I think sometimes we do things the way we've done them because they were inexpensive and they were quote unquote working, uh, we thought. And so we didn't change those things. But as we continue to ask these questions, I feel like that's what helps that conversation move forward into more than a conversation, but actually action. I agree. And let me add to, um, I think a lot of this is about relationships. I think um, meeting your food growers, meeting, you know, the people who, who raise the animals, I want to know who, who raises my animals. I love that I got to go out and tour, you know, the farm and, and meet everybody and, and taste the food. It's just about, it just comes down to relationships for me. Someone being personal and personable and knowing the face behind, you know, what's going on is very important to me. Very important. So I wonder, you know, if more farmers didn't get out there at, you know, to farmers markets and, you know, gyms and different places, grocery stores, do demos and things like that. I think that's great to introduce people to this kind of way of living and and to get a face with the name and and for people to meet each other and, and, you know, become friendly. I think that's an excellent point. We have like ag in the classroom around here, but not all places have things like that where 
you know, even the students are learning where does their food come from? I think, Mm -hmm. you know, so many kids don't understand and not just kids, but adults don't understand what makes up the food that they eat, where it came from. You know, I mean, I can remember as a young child having a calf that I raised and loved and took care of. And then dad said, well, now that calf's going to head off to market. So, you know, you kind of learn that cycle of life and it's good for you to know that because you know that you cared for that animal and gave it a really great life. And, uh, and then it in turn gives back too. Sure. I have a farmer friend in Georgia. We went to nutritional school together and they raise a cow, I think for two to three years, they raise one cow and she says, she'll name the cow and she loves the cow, loves it so much. And she says, uh, the last cow's name was Dewberry. Dewberry has a great life, a great three years and one really bad day. I think Monty says something similar about his cows too. Do you want them to live a great life and only have one bad day? So That's right. I, I agree. Emily, I, I think it's fascinating your personal story and, and what you discovered. And then I think it's even more fascinating with all of the different people and different conditions and symptoms that you're working with and seeing positive progress and results as a result of changing what they're eating. And I just find that fascinating to know that what we're doing with food can be very positive, like you said in in your opening quote, or it can be slowly degrading over time. And what we're doing as farmers and, and trying to do things to move more and more towards regenerative agriculture that's improving soil health, improving plant health, improving animal health, does have a direct impact on human health. So I think just like you were saying, when a consumer is armed with the right information, the right right decisions, and, and takes action and does it, they make a difference for themselves. And as farmers, when we're armed with the right information and take action to do the right thing, you know, we're part of the solution also. So I, I think it's, it's fascinating your firsthand experience and working with customers, seeing what they're doing. And uh, I just want to congratulate you for within your sphere of influence and your community, what you're doing to help these people that prior to working with you just didn't have the knowledge, resources, or the encouragement to, to make it happen. Thanks. It's my passion. I'm sure glad you're able to be on our podcast today. And look forward to continuing to visit with you and and serving our community together. And I hope that you continue on this journey that you're on of helping people and making a difference. And like you said, if we all just do our little part, we can make this happen over time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate Emily joining us today on the Ag Emerge podcast. It was great to hear uh, from her a little bit on what consumers are looking for and some of the things that she's seen. That's connecting human health all the way to soil health. Uh, Like she said, she's been out to our farm here in Henry County, Illinois, to see what we're doing by integrating livestock back to the land. She's been an advocate for that and also a great referral source, recommending a lot of her clients to purchase grass-fed beef from us, and we we thank her for that. But I wanted to take a moment here uh, after our interview with her, just dive in a little bit on what her perception of an ideal food world would look like. And just kind of bullet point by bullet point, we wrote them down here and talk about that. First off, on the farm, 
she's looking for someone who raises their food humanely. And now this will, you know, re apply to livestock mainly. So humanely is op open for definition. So typically if you're a hog confinement uh, farmer and, and you have your hogs inside, you know, you've got climate control, you view that as very humane. Uh, in dairies, we certainly are looking at cow comfort and those kind of things and think of a freestall dairy as a very humane process. However, we have to look at it from the eyes of the consumer because ultimately the consumer is the person who's writing our paychecks. And when we think about what they see, when they see a hog confinement and, and the smell associated with it, or if they see cows in barns not able to freely roam across the land, that's a negative to them. And we're aware of that. So we need to tell our story. Two things need to happen. We need to tell our story a little bit better about how, you know, freestall barns, for example, are comfortable and humane for them. But I think we also need to explore other opportunities to where we can bring livestock out to the land. A few of our pioneering farmers and dairymen are looking at using their young stock or their dry cows in a grazing situation, giving them that uh, two-month uh, break that they take from being a dry cow to be able to go on vacation out in a pasture. Now, not only does that help uh, with consumer perception, but it's also a cost-reducing uh, thing when we don't have to chop and bring the feed to them and we don't have to take the manure away from them and it can be done in an integrated way but it's also improving soil health at the same time so anytime there's a way that we can think like the consumer and try to meet what their preferences are and then market accordingly because if, if that's what they want if we could do things that they want that causes them to choose us first or may allow us to recover more of the added costs for doing things that way, it's an opportunity for us to improve margin, which ultimately is sustainability for our farms. The next point she made is uh, she wants farmers who are environmentally aware. Well, what they're doing affects, uh, and, and the effects that they have on the soil. You know, the next day, three months from now, five years from now, she said, leave the soil better than they found it. And I believe we all want that. Uh, I believe that we all think we are doing that. But there's also the reality that many of our soils are degrading. Irrigation water is, uh, you know, causing them to be more and more saline and get more and more salt buildup. Uh, intensive tillage is uh, ruining soil structure, water infiltration, water cycle, burning carbon out of our soils. So we have to really focus on the five soil health steps, not just give them lip service or not just say we're sustainable. We need to take action on these things and, and really move forward with never disturbing, minimal synthetic fertilizer inputs, just the ones that are real key like we offer as power to grow system. Looking at cover crops, eliminating tillage or, or you know, having a plan to get to no-till through strip till and cover crops and, and diverse rotations. And thinking in a, in a bigger context of how will this be better in 100 years. We may think we're doing some things better, but really, even in our best cases, we're just kind of treading water for now. We need to get ahead of this and be better at it. And that's what our consumer wants. And then again, we need to tell that story. And when we tell that story compellingly, the consumer 
wants to partner with us and wants to send their votes our way. And it also allows us an opportunity, because we are doing better and creating a better product and a better environment, to have a better price for the products that we're making. Organically raised food. Consumers want this, right? Again, price points are different, not always willing to pay for it, but that's what they want. And a lot of times, you know, large-scale organic is simply conventional farming with uh, organic inputs. So instead of a synthetic pesticide, we use an organic-approved pesticide. Both are deadly, but it's a matter of uh, using organic-improved materials. Organic-approved materials. And I think we need to think beyond just organic. I think we need to think regenerative organic. In other words, how can we enable systems to where we're not just changing our inputs, but we're changing our cropping system to where we don't have pests, we don't have weeds, we have an extended rotation, we're growing diverse foods that are in synergy with each other instead of just thinking a year at a time, thinking in seven-year type rotations. How can we do that? Because the consumer wants organically raised food. How do we provide that to them? But then again, the consumer also has to vote for that organic raised food. So depending on the category, it can be anywhere from a 15% to a 50 or 100% premium on the shelf for the organic food. How do we tell our story about what we're doing so that we can get more of the food dollar and get it more directly associated with the consumer so we capture more of that total food dollar? Locally sourced with low impact on the environment from trucking, shipping materials. That was another wish that Emily talked about. One of the things I want to dive into here a little bit deeper is the locally sourced for the food miles is somewhat of a, um, it, it appears bad, you know, because you can say, oh, this came from 2,000 miles coming from Salinas, California for lettuce. And food miles are important. I'm not discounting that. But I think we need to also look at there's a reason we grow lettuce in Salinas, for example. There's a reason we grow almonds in the San Joaquin Valley. First off, in almonds, that's the only place you can grow them is a the Mediterranean climate. They, they can't freeze in the winter. They need a certain number of chill hours. That's just how they're adapted. So food miles for some crops are just inevitable because that's the only place we can grow them. And, and not having access to almonds, you know, in the Midwest or on the East Coast, is that really the right thing to do? However, I think if we look at the core thing is having environmental impact. So how do we mitigate that environmental impact and tell that story? It's through soil health, by sequestering carbon, by reducing nitrogen applications. Typically, when we work with farmers with power to grow system, we are reducing nitrogen applications by 50 to 67 percent. And when we do that, we're burning less carbon out of the soil as a result, and we also dramatically reduce the risk of nitrous oxide emissions. The energy that goes into nitrogen fertilizer and the export of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere and nitrous oxide to the atmosphere, those right there are huge, huge environmental impacts. A hundred times greater than hauling lettuce 2,000 miles or 4,000 miles across the country. And I think as farmers, we have a huge opportunity to meet that challenge and tell the story of, don't worry about the food miles, worry about it being grown right where it's at. Because growing right where it's at can 
4,000 miles away can trump any day of the week something grown wrong next door to a person's place. Something very, very important to keep in mind that we're just not talking about it all. A food that is in season, you know, picked at proper time. Another thing that uh, Emily wanted to see an ideal uh, world, you know, no chemicals sprayed on it make uh, tomatoes red, for example. I think that's a, uh, that's a very good point. The seasonality of our food supply goes hand in hand with how we uh, evolved or were naturally selected. Uh, and I'm not saying this from a, a creationist or evolutionary standpoint. It's just the way it was up until about uh, 50 years ago. You know, we ate food that was in season and we ate canned food that was out of season. And those kind of things were part of our natural flow. It created kind of a um, nutrient overload and a nutrient fast within our bodies and our genetics have adapted to that over time. And I think that's, that's important to that seasonality instead of having, you know, a tomato that's perfect 365 days a year, there are some health implications by having too many of them in the summer and not enough of them in the winter or in different forms, you know, different canning or, or those kind of things. I think that's important. And, and there's some research out there about that, that you can dive into a little further. But, the, you know, no chemical sprayed on tomatoes make them red. Now, as far as putting ethylene gas on tomatoes, as far as we know, that isn't really a problem of storing them green and gassing them to, to put them on the store shelf. The bigger problem is, is we're picking them before they ripen on the vine. And, and the ripening at the very end is when most of the most valuable flavonoids and phytochemicals are put into the fruit. So having nutrient density is, is very, very important. And being able to create a supply chain that allows us to take and integrate fresh fruit that is picked at maturity instead of prematurity is good for human health. So what are opportunities there with data information, artificial intelligence, and those kind of things to shorten the lead time from customer demand to field readiness to where we can integrate that better on a large scale to get vine ripened tomatoes, as an example, directly to the person and address the shipping concerns of bruising and those kind of things. So if we know from the research and the science that these phytochemicals are put in right at the end of when the abscisic acid's being made at the at the fruiting point to to separate the fruit from the from the vegetative portion. When that happens, we know we've maximized nutrient density within that fruit. How can we get that fruit to a person's table immediately? And local is the way right now because of just coordination. But there's a huge opportunity there applying the science and technology together to make this all work. Another thing she said is just she really wants very few medications used on animals she eats. But she also said she doesn't want animals to suffer and, and does, but she doesn't want the meds in the food that she eats. So I think this is interesting. You know, some, some consumers are just, Oh, no antibiotics ever. Um, and you know, ABF antibiotic free standard is that uh, grass fed standard is that, but animal welfare standard is yes, give them a shot if they need it, but no low dose uh, antibiotics in the feed in order to act as a pro growth promoter. So I think there's a balance there. And Emily's saying that, you know, she and her clients will say, 
yeah, we want the the animal not to suffer, but we don't want it to be antibiotic resistant or cause problems in in our bodies. So some things we can do there is making sure we're monitoring withdrawals uh, on our own farm. If we give an animal an antibiotic shot, we double the length of withdrawal time. So if it's 28 day withdrawal, we make it 56 before we process. The second thing we do too is that meat is sold to restaurants or wholesale and not sold to the consumer. So that's how we're able to keep two separate meat streams there, still maintain the maximum value with the antibiotic free product and try to recover some of the value, uh, some of the full value when they do receive an antibiotic and and that's how we, we make those things work. Final thing she says is, you know, on the processor side, and, and I, I also found it interesting too, and I kind of put her on the spot, we didn't prep her for this, and these kind of things, but most of what she was thinking about was for the farmer. And we know that most things happen from the farmer, between the farmer and the consumer and the processor in. But she was saying, you know, on processed foods, find a way to make them shelf stable without having to use lots of chemicals, additives, and preservatives. You know, she said jokingly, I don't want to be preserved. I guess it's okay if uh, maybe you're at a uh, Egyptian mummy or something like that to be preserved, but uh, she, she doesn't want to be, and I can't blame her for that. So we need to think of ways that, you know, with, with freezing, uh, canning, all these other types of things that maybe we're not using preservatives because that's something that the consumers are interested in. Clean food labels are a real trend. The number of ingredients, the fewer the ingredients, the more interested they are in buying. And that is a, that is a huge, uh, I wouldn't say it's a fad at all. It is a trend. People are interested in clean food and they judge clean food by the words that are on the label and if they can pronounce them or not. Di dihydrogen oxide or water would scare a person. So, you know, you gotta, they gotta look at how, how these things work and make sure that we are uh, encouraging our processors and I think one of the ways that we can control that is if you are raising a crop or considering raising a crop or, or meat product that you can sell direct from your farm to the consumer now as a farmer you've taken over control of what happens to that food product because you're writing the check for the processing instead of the processor buying the food from you and when you have control of that processing chain if you have the ability to do that, then you can market that. And again, you can preserve the high value of what you're creating. So as farmers, if we want to continue to be in the commodity business, which my dad often says, historically is break even, you know, commodity is break even for cost of production. If we want to continue to do that, and then continue to expect break even or maybe a little better. But if you want to, gain the value of all the good things you're doing with soil health by working together with us and all the great nutrient density that you're creating in a regenerative type fashion in the foods that you're producing and you want to control that getting to customers who know love and trust you now all of a sudden instead of accepting eight to ten percent of the food dollar you can accept a hundred percent of the food dollar less processing and distribution costs and when you're ready to take that step and go there and realize that every other business that produces a product really is required to sell to their customer, why as farmers do we produce commodities and expect somebody just to buy it? And then we complain about it when the prices are too low. 
when corn and soybean are too low, everybody's whining and complaining. You know, when when uh, dairy prices are too low, it's like, oh, you know, the processors are getting us and, and all this kind of thing. Why are we doing that? Why are we willing to accept that status quo? I would love to hear how you guys are thinking about doing things differently to create more margin because more margin means sustainability for your family on your farm for a long term. And that's ideally what we want for you. We're just here to help coach and encourage you, give you ideas, but you're the hero that has to make it happen. And we look forward to hearing how you're going to make these things happen. And I hope that listening to Emily a little bit, you have a better appreciation that what we're doing as farmers and the food that we're producing has a dramatic impact on people's lives. And if we can help connect our soil and our food to the consumer and better understand what they're looking for, we have an opportunity to be more economically, environmentally sustainable and have a lot of fun doing it because we know who we're producing food for. Well, I really appreciate you tuning in to this edition of the Aggie Merge podcast. I hope that this has caused you to think a little bit beyond just, hey, I'm an almond farmer or I'm a tomato farmer or I'm a corn and soybean, a wheat, barley. I'm a cotton farmer. No, you're not. You're a farmer who produces food or fiber. What does my customer want? How can I do a better job of doing that? And when I do a better job, I'm going to do a better, I'm going to get a better reward. So enjoy. Think about that. Please let us know what you're going to do differently as a result of thinking for your consumer. This is Monty Bottoms. Thanks for tuning in.